So, we've been doing a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, we're going to do one more of those next week. I was debating, actually, yesterday when Glory reached out and we were like, what song should we do? And I, I still, at that point, hadn't decided whether I was going to talk about wisdom and folly um, as a scheme to try to sort of do an end run around the effects of the fall or the frustration of death. And of course, when I got the text this morning, that kind of settled that issue for us. It does put things out of order because Ecclesiastes talks about pleasure and wisdom and folly as all these schemes, all of which are shown to not really work because of the frustration of death, right? So we're talking about death and then we're going to backtrack. But that's okay because Ecclesiastes is one of those books that it's, it's better to kind of go through different topics and where the book talks about it than it is to just go from verse 1 of chapter 1 through to the end, all right? So today we're going to look at, tonight we're going to look at the frustration of death. And um, I'm going to say a couple things then before we dig into the first bit of the scripture, but the scriptures as we come to them are all on the outline here, okay? So... The, the, the chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes starts out talking about various schemes. If you remember, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, as I've said, is about the frustration that has come to everything because of the fall. It talks about life under the sun, and life under the sun is life after the fall. It's not life apart from God, like some people have understood the book. It really is life up, uh, uh, under the fall. And... The, the word that's translated in some translations, vanity, in some translations, meaningless, um, is really best understood as frustrating. So when I, when I read this, I usually will substitute vanity, I'll usually substitute frustrating, just to keep reminding us of that. And here's the idea, that everything after the fall, after sin has entered the world, it's messed up everything. As Bob Dylan said, everything is broken right? Everything. Nothing is the way it should be, okay? And yet, like we talked about last week, God still gives us joy in the midst of the frustration, in the midst of the brokenness. He gives good gifts to us, not just to get us to think about heaven, but even right now, these moments of grace, these gifts that he gives us that um, teach us about his heart, his father heart. And tonight we're going to talk about the frustration of death. Because death is the thing that frustrates all our plans, all our goals. It's the thing that frustrates all the schemes of the writer of Ecclesiastes to try and find life and meaning. All of them, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of folly, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of riches. In chapter 2, all of them come to the same end. Well, I poured myself into this, and still, death. Death comes and brings this whole scheme, because Ecclesiastes is about these different schemes. Can we find a way to live to where we won't have to struggle? That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's part of the wisdom literature. Wisdom, how then shall we live in light of reality? And reality is, Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Can we find a way to live where we won't have to struggle? And Ecclesiastes is going to say, no, you can't. 
And the main reason is because death comes to even the solutions or the schemes that seem so promising. And it's not just that death is frustrating in itself, and it certainly is, it's that death seeps into every part of life and every joy and frustrates all of them from being what they should be. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, put it this way, if one fate comes to all and that fate is extinction, it robs every man, every woman of their dignity and every project of its point. It's not just that death is a great enemy. It's that it makes every other thing that you would pour yourself into seem meaningless. It, it, it raises the question of what's the point if we're all just going to die. You've probably felt that, right? It doesn't matter how wise we are. Death still will take us one day. Look at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 11 through 16. There's a good kind of sample of the the way death functions in Ecclesiastes. Both the wise man and the fool share the same fate. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless, or this too is frustrating. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So being wise is better than being a fool. At least you have eyes in your head. I love that, that image. But death still comes, right? No matter how you try to secure for yourself a name, a reputation, the fact is probably no one in this room knows the names of their great-great-grandparents. That's not that long ago. Maybe you've done some Ancestry.com research and you know, but probably most of you don't. And no matter how rich we are, it doesn't matter how wise we are, it doesn't matter how rich we are, we can't control to what happens to all that we've worked for after we die. That's where Ecclesiastes chapter 2 goes next. This is verse 17 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing, this is why, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun, this also is vanity, or this also is frustrating. And then verse 20 of chapter 3 says this, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. And in that, do you hear the echo of the curse from Genesis chapter 3? So I mentioned the very first week, Ecclesiastes is actually a commentary or an exploration, a meditation on the curse. The curse that has come. Frustration is what happened after the fall. The man's work was cursed. 
to dust he will return. And Ecclesiastes picks up on that there. So we should hate death. It frustrates everything. It's a result of sin. That's the echo there. To dust we will return. That was what God said after the fall when he gave the curse. But I wonder this, when did you really begin to hate death? Do you really hate death as you should? See, I think a lot of people try to make peace with it. And sometimes the way I hear Christians talk about it, and certainly the way I hear non-Christians talk about death, it seems that we don't really take it as seriously as we should. When did you begin to really hate death? I've got lots of stories from my own life. You probably have some from your own life as well. But God wants us to face the reality of death rather than take refuge in these different schemes. For instance, the distraction of pursuing pleasure. You know, the church used to be a place that felt it was part of its job was to remind you of reality. This is why, have you ever seen an old church, often the front walk goes right through what? The cemetery. It's very intentional. The point was, when you walk into these doors, you are dealing with matters of life and death. Too often today, people think of religion or of Christianity as a little add-on to make life work better. I think we've lost that sense that this is about matters of life and death. But that's what Christians have always understood. And it used to be built into the layout of the buildings, even. Now we have cemeteries on, you know, peaceful hillsides. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I'll probably be buried like that someday. Actually, we have a plot in a cool old cemetery down in, in Columbia. So maybe that's where I'll get buried. We'll see. <laughs> But I, I think there, there really is something about this. I think about some of the, the ways that we try to avoid thinking about death. It seems sometimes like a rude interruption. Like things are going along fine, and then we hear about somebody who died, or maybe it comes close to home, and then we think about it. But Ecclesiastes says wisdom actually means thinking about it a lot and taking it into account in the way we live. This is in chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Listen to this. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. I don't know. I've visited a lot of churches. I've visited a lot of like worship gatherings. And I definitely would not have gotten this impression. I just find it very rare that you would be around Christians and you would get this sense that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Because it seems that most of the time we think that the normal Christian life should be about feasting and about the party. And every once in a while, oh yeah, every once in a while something hard happens. But Ecclesiastes says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting for death. This is the reason, because death is the destiny of every man and the living should take this to heart. How about you? Do you take death to heart? Does it factor into what you think about when you think about your plans, when you think about your hopes, 
and your dreams. And that may seem a little morbid, but Ecclesiastes says this is wisdom. This is part of how we should live. It goes on, verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. See, the Bible commends grieving rather than pretending. It's one of the reasons I love the book of Ecclesiastes because sometimes we don't want to do that. And Ecclesiastes, remember the end of the book said, all the words of this book are upright and true. The words of the wise, the end of Ecclesiastes says, are like goads. You remember I told you what a goad is? A goad is the spike that you use to jab an oxen in the rear end to make it go. So all of these words are supposed to prick us, to wake us up. Death is coming. Now I've been doing campus ministry for 24 years. And there have been students who've been sitting in my ministry who are no longer alive today. And that's crazy to think about because you think, we're young. Of course we'll outlive you, Kevin. (laughs) But maybe not. Maybe not. And part of what Ecclesiastes says is, it's good to think about that. And it's good to grieve. Even that. See, even if you're not grieving somebody in particular who's died, of course tonight we're all grieving a particular death. But even if you're not grieving a particular death, you should have a general low-grade grieving all the time because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And it's good to bring that to the Lord and not just to try to, to, to ignore that by pouring yourself into other things so you don't ever have to think about it. This passage teaches that we should take death to heart. To reflect on the reality of death is absolutely necessary if we would live wisely in the days that God has given us. It should sober us. It should challenge us to pretend, to not pretend that we're immortal. See, I, I think so often Christians are romantic and naive about death, and we should never be that way. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Lord, teach us to number our days aright. Live in light of death. I think, um, I was thinking back about my grandmother's funeral, which uh, she'd been part of a a church of a different denomination, and those people had loved on her and cared for her, and then I got asked to do the homily at the funeral, and the pastor, her pastor got up and basically gave this little message about how, you know, Doris can still hear us, like she's with us and among us, and she can hear us, and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, that's not true. She's dead. And, we, and it doesn't do anybody any good to romanticize that away. So <laughs> I got up and I said, she's dead. She's dead. She can't hear us. He didn't shake my hand afterwards. It was a little awkward, but as a, as a minister of the Word of God, I couldn't just let that lie go unchallenged. Because wisdom means taking death seriously, not romanticizing it away. And it's particularly in Ecclesiastes, the young, you guys, who are told to think about death. Ecclesiastes verse 12, verses 1 and verse 7 says this, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. 
In verse 7, And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, N.T. Wright, great New Testament scholar, has a fabulous book on true Christian hope rather than the sappy, romantic kind of Christian hope about how we're just going to escape from here one day. Even that song we sang, I was a little bothered by that one line, right? Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Because uh, I think most people, when you sing that, you think we're going to go escape into heaven. It's up there somewhere. That's not the biblical picture, guys. The biblical picture is that the new heavens and the new earth will come down. And earth has no sorrow that the new heavens and the new earth won't heal. But don't think that the Christian hope is just escaping somewhere. It's why we'll probably never sing, I'll fly away here in RUF. It's why there's so few good songs about what Christian hope really is. But we sang the best one tonight when we sang For All the Saints. Because For All the Saints is like this Tolkien-esque kind of vision. I don't know if you ever saw or read The Return of the King. But when the host comes streaming in, right, and all things have been made right, that's the picture that we have. The new heavens and the new earth in a city that's so secure that Revelation 21 says the gates are never closed. See, cities are the place that protects you from the danger, and they do that by closing the gates. In the ancient world, that's what cities are for, to protect you. And yet, the new heavens and the new earth, the city, the new Jerusalem that comes down, the gates are never shut. There's no need, because God has put down every enemy. But it's the young that are particularly exhorted to reflect in the reality of death. Here's what N.T. Wright says. From Plato to Hegel and beyond, all you philosophy people like this quote, I think. From Plato to Hegel and beyond, some of the greatest philosophers declared that what you think about death and life beyond it is the key to thinking seriously about everything else. And indeed, that it provides one of the main reasons for thinking seriously about anything at all. This is something a Christian theologian should heartily endorse. But the fact is, I think we try so many different schemes to ignore the fact that we live under the curse, yet death frustrates them all. Let me explore a few of these. We try to ignore it in our culture. I think Christians and non-Christians are both pretty good at living in denial. Death in our culture has been marginalized in so many ways because we can't deal with it. I remember when Wendy worked at the hospital, um, she said that they didn't like talk about death. They talked about people expiring. And I thought, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Like you make it seem so clinical, so sanitized, right? But here's the thing. Death is a great enemy. And you can't just change the words to pretend that it's fine. Even familiarity doesn't make it less weird. And some of you all know that. Some of you have like stood in front of a dead body, held the hand of someone as they die. I don't care how many times you do that, it's still eerie. It's still weird. And death and suffering should focus our minds on questions of why. Why are we here? That's what it does for Ecclesiastes. Death means you have to think differently about everything you pour yourself into. 
Why am I doing what I'm doing? Another scheme, we try and explain away death as natural. Classic version of this is Sir Francis Bacon, who said this, death is as natural, or sorry, it is as natural to die as to be born. And to a little infant, perhaps, the one is as painful as the other. You hear this kind of thing all the time, that death is just part of the, the process. It's part of living. It's not part of living. Death is not part of living. It's the interruption of living. And it's not the way things are supposed to be. And if it's natural, why do we then still rage at death? We all rage at death. It's not natural. And again, anybody that's watched somebody die knows that. Another scheme, we try and take control over death. This is like what the existentialists advise, right? Spit into the wind. Even if you can't stop death, at least you can be in charge of the manner in which you die. There was a movie that illustrated this so well years ago, before you all were born, but maybe you've seen it, Thelma and Louise. Have you all seen this movie? It's a movie, it's a powerful movie about the frustration these two women, just everything is against them, and there's no way to escape all the stuff that's happened to them, all this crap that's happened to them, but they achieve victory of a sense the very end of the movie when they get their car to the edge of this cliff, all the police are kind of coming down on them. They look at each other, they grab hands triumphantly, and they drive off the cliff, right? That's the existential salvation. You can at least be in charge of the manner of your own death. But as a scheme, it doesn't work because you're still dead. You're still dead. Another scheme, romanticizing it away. N.T. Wright puts it this way. There's been a revival, a revival of a sort of low-grade, popular nature religion with elements of Buddhism. At death, one is absorbed into the wider world, into the wind and the trees. After Princess Diana's death, one message left in London spoke as in the princess's own voice, quote, I did not leave you at all. I'm still with you. I'm in the sun and in the wind. I'm even in the rain. I did not die. I am with you all. That's like the theology of the Lion King right? It's terrible theology. It might bring comfort, but it's cold comfort. C.S. Lewis, man, he said this so well, powerful words. After his wife died, he said this, what pitiable, pitiable cant, which is almost in, Eng in England, I think, almost a swear word, right? What pitiable cant to say, she will live forever in my memory. This is what people told him about joy after she died. Live? That is exactly what she won't do. You might as well think like the old Egyptians that you can keep the dead by embalming them. Will nothing persuade us that they are gone? As if I wanted to fall in love with my memory of her, an image in my own mind, it would be a sort of incest. Strong words. It won't do to romanticize death away. And then sometimes we even just try to laugh at death and mock it. I remember a friend of mine in college, I'll never forget, um, somebody said something to him about his smoking because he was this crazy chain smoker and he, he had this like standard line that he would respond. I heard him use it several times. He said, you know, anybody can stop smoking but it takes a real man to face cancer. Well, that's the kind of thing you say when you're 19, right? Though it is fascinating, like... <laughs> Hardly anybody smokes anymore. It's, it's really fascinating. Like all of my friends in college smoked all the time. It's a whole different world, right? 
safety first and health and all that kind of stuff has really changed the culture. But still, I think there, sometimes you just find it easier to like make jokes and not take it seriously, right? But ultimately, here's the thing, guys. We don't need to resort to schemes because death has been defeated. Remember, Ecclesiastes is about living under the curse while longing for something better. And in that, that phrase there that I read in chapter 12, verse 7, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. In that, there's this glimmer of hope that death is not the end. Now, Ecclesiastes doesn't develop it. The Old Testament actually doesn't develop it very much. But there are these little tantalizing hints that there is life beyond the grave. And these tantalizing hints are brought out in full technicolor in the New Testament, right? But here's what's interesting. Uh, if you ask most Christians, what is the Christian response to death? Why do we have hope in death? Most people will say, well, it's because Jesus died, and therefore we don't need to fear death anymore. Now, Jesus' death is certainly a big deal, right? But the Bible never speaks of Jesus' death alone as being the answer to the problem of death. It's always the death and resurrection of Christ. And here we are, coming into Easter, right? It's good to be reminded again of what the true Christian hope is. It's not just that we'll die one day and go join God and Jesus in heaven. That's not actually the good, good news. N.T. Wright says, what we need to remind people of is the good news after that good news, the real life after life after death. Yes, those who are Christians, when they die, their spirit will go to be with God. But that's a temporary state because Death is the separation of the soul from the body, but it's not the ultimate end. What the Bible says is there will be a glorified body and a reunion of your spirit with a glorified body. Now, the Bible gives us little hints about what this is about. It doesn't fully describe it in such a way that you could write like a medical textbook about the glorified body, right? But it does tell us that, that there's something physical in our future, right? Death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus has dealt the death blow to death. See, the frustration of death demands an answer bigger than death. And that's what we have in the resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever read that sonnet by John Donne? Death, be not proud. Oh, it's so fabulous. If you've never seen this movie, Wit, W-I-T, which is also fabulous, but very hard to watch, particularly if you've ever been around someone suffering from cancer. But it all centers around this sonnet. The last line of this sonnet is this, and it's so just right. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Death, be not proud. You may think that you have won, but the Christian hope is that death thou shalt die.
Our hope, you see, our hope is in what Paul talks about in Romans 8. See, here's the connections. Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Genesis 3 and the fall. Romans 8 is a commentary on Ecclesiastes. Because in Romans 8, Paul talks about how the whole creation is groaning in frustration. And it quotes Ecclesiastes there in Romans 8 when it does that. And what does Romans 8 say? That the whole creation is groaning in frustration until, and that's the glorious good news, that there is something more than the groaning and the frustration, until the whole creation will come into this consummation, the glorious liberty and freedom that the sons and daughters of God will experience in fullness. So while we live in the frustration, Romans 8 says the frustration is not the end. You see, God's original intention was for mankind to spread the garden to all to all of the cosmos. You're to take, Adam and Eve, you're to take this creation, the cultivated part of creation, and extend it to the whole cosmos. And when sin entered the world, that was interrupted. But God has never come up with a plan B. He's only brought the gospel to restore us to what he always intended to glorify God and enjoy him forever in ways you can't even begin to imagine. And it's not enough just for you to, your spirit to go off to heaven when you die. That doesn't fix the problem, which is that brokenness has come to all of God's good creation. God is going to bring a salvation and redemption that's bigger than the frustration. That means when you're tasting and you're feeling the frustration in particularly acute ways, let that be like a trampoline for a gymnast that launches you into the real hope, which is so much bigger. The real hope, if the frustration feels real to you, use that as a launching pad to the hope. Because as much as is broken, the shalom, the full restoration, is so glorious it can hardly be imagined. See, we've never, under, we've never seen a creation that's not frustrated. But God has, and Jesus has, and he assures us that it's worth it and that it's coming. The Christian hope is that there will be real life after life after death. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, death begins to work backwards. That's C.S. Lewis's memorable phrase. And one day, as Tolkien put it, everything sad will become untrue. That's our hope. It doesn't mean that we pretend now that it's not sad and it's not frustrating. But it does mean that we grieve as those with hope. And hope is not just like this kind of vague optimism that things will just kind of work out given enough time. Because the fact is, death doesn't, doesn't work out with enough time. Death requires an intervention. 
There needs to be an intervention or everything is just getting worse and worse. But there's been a glorious intervention and things are not the same. Death has begun to work backwards and everything sad will become untrue. That's our hope and it's a good hope. Let's pray.